0: And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. It's going to be a interesting hour, so don't go anywhere. I've got uh, a very uh, interesting topic for us today, and because of the nature of the topic, I, I assume that it will always be appropriate for younger ears. But I will ask my guest for certain if that's the case. Um, we're talking today about uh, Hillary Morgan Ferrer's book called "Mama Bear Apologetics." Guide to Sexuality. And we're going to talk about what kids need to know, uh, what's right, what's wrong, and what they're facing in today's culture. Hillary, welcome.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah. Is it uh, appropriate to say that uh, all ears are are okay for this conversation or do we need to be careful?
1: Well, I would say it depends on where some of the questions lead. Because <laughs> I, I am known to be very frank about information and, and my filter has since writing this book has kind of uh, gone a little bit of the way of the dodo, just because you have to parse through so many things that sometimes I forget about like what people can handle at the time. So I would just say maybe be cautious with your kids in the room. I appreciate uh, maybe that. pop in some earbuds just in case.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Or listen to it on the podcast uh, at a later time. You can always do that mm-hmm. as well. And when I saw your book title, Mama Bear Apologetics Guide to Sexuality, I felt like I, I knew a lot about you without knowing anything about you because just the <laughs> title alone gives me an idea of where you're coming from which was one of the things mm-hmm. that intrigued me about the book so glad to have you uh, on the show and maybe we can just start by uh just setting the the table a little bit how how sexual holiness is a is a non-negotiable for disciples of Jesus
1: yeah so first off one of the things that i think kids sometimes think right now is that oh, the parents are just kind of outdated or they're old fashioned. But what I don't I don't think they realize is that our sexuality from the very beginning, like from when uh, even Israel became a nation, when the Lord was taking them out of the Egyptians and bringing them into the promised land, one of the things that was supposed to set them apart from the cultures and from the nations in which they were coming was their sexuality. This is something that uh i believe is built into what, what we refer to as the telos of what it means to be a human being a telos means the the purpose for which something was created that w- when when you operate things according to their purpose they are they automatically just kind of run better run smoother they run the way that they were intended And so we have this idea that we can take the telos, the purpose, the intention, the design Mm -hmm. of God's sexuality, and we can behave in a way that's contrary to that. And we're going to still be um, as well-adjusted and uh, flourishing as in humans and as Christians, as if we were as if it's interchangeable that we could do our own thing in this one area. And that's just not the case. It's not only for our benefit, but it really is literally how we are called to be set apart. In fact, there's a an old uh, letter from, I think it was the emperor. Uh, it was one of the emperors to, I think Trajan. I'm drawing a blank right now with the, tw- between the two guys, it was in the first century. And he was saying, these Christians are so weird. They even have rules about who can cohabitate so, this was something that set them apart, it set Israel apart from the nations as they were coming. It set Christians apart from the nations and from the cultures that they were in. And it is supposed to be setting us apart from the culture and from the nations that we are in currently. And we are just looking more and more like the world. And I don't think we realize, number one, the disservice that that's doing to us as human beings. But number two, that we are misrepresenting God and misrepresenting who He is wanting to show the nations. Who he is, and so that's something that I, I just don't think it's a negotiable. Something that we can be like, oh, that's that's not a big deal. No, this was the plan from the very beginning on how to set us apart from the rest of humanity.
0: Mm-hmm. Hillary Morgan Ferrer is my guest, and her book is called "Mama Bear Apologetics: Guide to Sexuality." And I must say, I appreciated what you just said about setting the stage. And uh, I, m- I remember years ago, I was in an accident; my car was totaled, and I was mm-hmm. looking at it, thinking. Well, it's still sitting there. (laughs) I can play the radio. um, I can open the golf compartment and get my stuff out of it. But because it's totaled, it's now alienated from its original design. It can no longer Mm -hmm. do what it was designed to do. And it seems that we as Christians are, when we look at how God has purposed and made us and created us and given us this covenant, covenantal bond for the appropriate place for sex that we have, we have walked away from that, that that purpose. So I appreciate that opening statement you had. Thank you. Yeah. So I, I do want you to say a little bit more about that. If you can, if you have more in the tank on that topic, cause that's really, I actually
1: do. I've really, got plenty in the tank. Oh, really interesting. Uh, one, one of the things that people have said is that, especially when in regards to LGBTQ issues, that they think that, Oh, we, we see increased anxiety. We see increased, uh, especially suicidal ideation and suicidal attempts within this particular demographic and they say well it's because we're not accepting enough they're feeling the condemnation of culture and if we were just to become more accepting then they would be able to flourish as they you know feel that they were created to be and so i i actually wanted to look into that and see if that really held water and uh, two of the things that i noticed one of them i noticed while we were writing the book and the other one i found just literally a couple weeks ago um number one is that um every single kind of deviation within sexuality. And this is where the little, the little ears aspect might come into play. Sure. Anytime you're really getting away from God's design with any kind of what's called a sexual minority, meaning that they're not treating their sexuality as between a man and a, a man and a woman in marriage. When you have adolescents that are engaging in sexual activity and romantic relationships, when you have uh same sex people engaging in romantic relationships And then you get into some of the the more things, if you don't know what these are, please do not Google them, but the BDSM communities and maybe some of the furry communities, you actually see increase, like it's got around 40% suicidality within those demographics. And you only hear about that when it comes to LGBT stuff, saying we need to really protect this one group because they have a 40% higher chance of trying to commit suicide. But what we see across the spectrum is whenever you're misusing the sexuality, you're seeing a, uh, an increase in suicidality. Now, the one that I found a couple of weeks ago, I was thinking, well, okay, if, if we are asking about, is it because society is less accepting, is that the reason why we see this kind of, uh, these kind of suicidal ideation and anxiety and suicidal attempts? So I just kind of Googled, what is the most LGBT affirming country in the world? And I believe it was Norway. And so after that, I decided to look at the suicide rates out of Norway in terms of sexuality and they they linked them into or they put them into four different groups. You had heterosexuals who were not having, I think, in terms of adolescents who, you know, would obviously not be married, heterosexuals not having sex, Uh, heterosexuals engaging in sexual activity outside of marriage, Uh, individuals with same sex attraction who had not engaged in sexual activity and then same sex attracted individuals who are currently engaging in sexual activity and what you saw. Is every single step and especially with that four step the increase in suicidal ideation and suicidal attempts and a lot of times multiple attempts. And so when we're talking about what is the tell us of a human what is our purpose, what is our design and what is the tell us the purpose design of sexuality, can we flourish. If we misuse that, the statistics are showing no, that no matter how accepting society is that, that we intrinsically, our bodies know what we were created for. And you start creating the anxiety and the depression and a lot of the mental health things just by the very actions that you take within sexuality. And I think that's something that if more people understood that, that they wouldn't be so quick to say, well, we need to affirm people in whatever sexuality they are. No, that is not the way to love them because the the research is showing that that's still going to have an increase in suicidality and ideation, which is always going to be probably um, following senses of anxiety and depression. So that's kind of some of the research that I've looked at that really does affirm God's good design that he he made these boundaries for our good. This is the way we were created. And when we behave in a way that is not the way we were created, our brains and our bodies know.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm so glad we're on listener-supported faith radio because you know some of what you're saying is what the world would say is hate speech. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that you're you're being hateful because we're not uh, we're not agreeing with everything, and we're we're saying that God's design is uh, perfect, and that when you deviate from God's design, there's going to be um, problems and and mm-hmm. pain and anxiety. And um, I I I think that's you know what we see. All around us in, in the world today. Absolutely. So let's uh, continue to talk about the the great design that God has given us, and and how gender and marriage and sex and family show us the God that we can't see.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the things that uh, we talk about in the in the chapter that's talking about how gender, sex. Um, marriage, family, all these things are intended to show us the God that we can't see is in our postmodern generation, we have kind of gotten away from the concept of meaning that things have inherent meaning. So there are some, there are things that are called social constructs, meaning we have created the meaning, like saying, um, when you see a red light, that means stop. When you see a green light, that means go. There are things that are social constructs where we as a society have agreed. Yeah. We drive on this side of the road and this This um, this color means to, you know, go or to stop or you even think back in the Nixon administration, him giving the peace sign. And I think there were some places that he visited that um, met the F word like Mm -hmm. F you to the society because they had changed the meaning of that. And so we assume that because we can create meaning with certain things, that everything is a product of meaning that we have created instead of. There are things within gender, there are things within sexuality, and there are things that are in marriage and family that are intended to point to something beyond ourselves. Like we hear the Apostle Paul that's talking about marriage. Marriage is intended to show us a picture of what Christ and his church are like. And now we have another chapter called a really great design when followed that I think a lot of people have a really bad idea of who God is and what authority structures are and who God is supposed to be in our lives. Because either they did not have a good relationship with their father, or they do not have; they're not married to a man who shows them what it looks like to love his wife like his own body. This is presupposing for these analogies to work uh, that the people who are kind of almost doing performance art of these roles have to be following the way that God prescribed. And I coming from a, a background where my father is amazing in the way he exercised authority, and my husband. Is amazing in the way he leads our family. I mean, every birthday, every Father's Day, I thank my dad and I thank my husband. Thank you for showing me what God the Father is like. Thank you for showing me what Christ is like and what it means to be under good authority. Now, in, in terms of gender, I think this is showing us that there's a quote that we have by Rachel Gilson that she's talking about within uh, gender. Genders are not interchangeable. And especially within marriage, it's like it always assumes in in the analogies of marriage that God uh, kind of is analogous to the male role and the church is analogous to the female role. That you can't have two females and have a picture of the church. You can't have two males and have a picture of the church. You lose the picture of Christ or you lose the picture of the church if you relegate those. And she says the beauty of that male and female is about a shared humanity. And just radical differences that are shockingly, a a chasm that is shockingly bridged through that marriage and through that sexuality. And furthermore, within marriage and sexuality, you also get to see what leadership and what authority is supposed to be because our ultimate destinies, if we, if the Bible is true, now some people don't think the Bible is true. So we'll say, well, let's just bypass that. If the Bible is true, then this is going to be our eternal destiny is to be living Under a hierarchy, under authority. And if we don't know what that looks like, and if we hate the concept and think authority itself is evil, because we've never experienced it here on this world, then we have no reason to even long for heaven. So marriage, family, gender, sexuality, all these things, when done well. When done in the way that they were prescribed, it's a really great design. When done, when done well, and it really does point us to the God whom we cannot see.
0: Yeah, God is perfect. All right, we're take a little break. Hillary Morgan Ferrer is uh, my guest. Her book is called Mama Bear: Apologetics Guide to Sexuality. We'll be right back. My guest today is Hillary Morgan Ferrer. She's written a book called "Mama Bear: Apologetics Guide to Sexuality," and there might be an occasional word or phrase that gets used in today's conversation that may not be a hundred um, percent something your younger kids you want them to hear. So, uh, I don't plan on them there being anything inappropriate, but just words <laughs> that you may not want them to hear at this point. So, and I want uh, Hillary to be able to uh, talk freely because that's what she does and uh, so i 'm glad to have her on the program hillary let 's talk about uh, making sure we we address arguments and and when we are attacking uh, let 's make sure we attack arguments and not people
1: mm-hmm. absolutely so i one of the things that i've tried to stress in both the books that we have is the difference between rebels and captives. So a rebel is someone who is just and and we're going to have people that are rebellious, that are just, you know, shaking their angry fist at God and trying to do what, you know, if he says the sky's blue, they want to say the sky's red. Whatever he he says, they're going to say the opposite. You know, yeah, that might be someone who's rebellious. But we also have another category of captives, people who are held captive to ideologies. In fact, there's two passages that I usually talk about, one in First Corinthians and one in Colossians. kind of contrast these two concepts of saying take every thought captive and so we either take our thoughts captive or in the other verse it says um that people who are taken captive through idle philosophies that depend on the traditions of man rather than the the teachings of god so we have people who have been taken captive by ideologies and i don't think there's anywhere more obvious with this than within the realm of sexuality than within the realm of the whole lgbtq Just ideology in general that um, I call it spiritual Stockholm syndrome, where Stockholm syndrome is where someone who's been taken captive begins to associate and to relate with their captor more than they do with the people who are trying to free them. So the captor forms the relationship with them, makes them think, oh, I'm the one who cares about you. I'm the one who's going to take care of you. And so the person who's been taken captive will actually fight anyone who's trying to free them and so when we're dealing with people with these ideologies a lot of time a lot of times they think that they are freely choosing these these ideologies and that this ideology is what has their best interest this ideology this this lgbt community is the one that understands them that is trying to give them freedom that wants them to flourish and when we when we approach people like this we need to make sure that we're not coming in and saying, I'm just going to drop a couple truth bombs, give you a couple statistics or, you know, scream the word of God will not return return void and throw you some truth here. And if you don't want to accept it, well then, you know, there you go, you, you rebellious person. We need to be forming that relationship with the person and understanding why is it that they are clinging to this ideology more than Christ? Because a lot of times sexuality is not going to be the main issue. I think in our culture and especially in the church, we often treat sexuality or a deviation from God's intended sexuality as if that's the main problem when that's not the main problem. Oftentimes it's the fact that either they don't know, the person does not know God, or even if they think they know God, they don't understand his goodness. Mm -hmm. I I am so thankful for the ministries of people like Rosaria Butterfield or Jackie Hill Perry, um, Rachel Gilson, who have, or Christopher Yuan, who have all struggled with same-sex attraction or been in, in homosexual relationships in the past. And it was the kindness of God that led them to repentance. It was the relationship with Christians that made them desire the goodness of God. I like how Jackie Hill Perry talks a lot in her Instagrams that the problem is that this person does not know the goodness of God, because when we truly see The goodness of God, there's no way we're going to want something else more. So you can't just say, stop doing that and expect for a behavior to change. A lot of times you have to have something that you're searching for more or something that you're pursuing more. Like I think of, there's a Liam Neeson movie that just came out recently where he was a bank robber. And then he meets this woman whom he wants to spend the rest of his life with. And so he decides he wants to go confess to the FBI. Now, it's not because some people kept saying you need to get out of bank robbing, you need to get out of bank robbing. It's because all of a sudden he had something he wanted to pursue more, which was this woman. And so I think we can take that analogy. If someone is not willing to give up their sexuality, they have not found something in Christ that is worth pursuing more. And so our job is to help them find that beauty and the love and the grace of christ and so they are so drawn to that that everything else fades away and i think that's how we can avoid treating people like ideologies but on this on the the same side we cannot treat ideologies like people like we be all soft and accommodating to ideologies we need to as we say on mama bear we demolish ideas but we love people
0: Mm. so good um when you have a conversation with people who are uncertain about god Usually the two things that show up is, is God good and can he be trusted? Because most of the people say, I prefer doing what I want to do when I want to do it with whom I want to do it with. And that's the way God made me. So I don't know if I can follow this God if you're telling me he's going to want to infringe on what I believe to be who I am. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And I think this this is an appropriate time where you can start looking at the statistics that we talked about earlier and showing how, hey, every time you get away, <laughs> excuse me, from the biblical design of marriage, you see just um, mental fallout and almost like an increase in mental illness, an increase in anxiety, an increase in depression, an increase in all these different things. And just say, why do you think that is that we see this increase? And of course, if they're going to answer, well, it's because people aren't, more accepting. Well, then you can point out the Norway study. Well, what about, you know, in Norway where it shows that they're very, very accepting and these statistics are all the same. How would you answer it then? And kind of just asking them questions because they are so tied to this idea that if only other people were more accepting, then they could accept themselves. But really, um, they're showing that the law of God is written on their hearts and they're having a hard time with their own they're, they're struggling with their own desires, like we all do as Christians, that we all have desires that are not out for our benefit. And I think kind of getting them to understand, um, you know, some of the statistics and that and helping them come to that conclusion themselves. Also, putting ourselves at the same place so we have in our, our, our chapter on same-sex attraction, how the church has notoriously created certain categories of sin that was the unforgivable sin at every single generation and then what happened is once enough people fell into that sin well then we kind of said well we're we're going to cut our losses there and move on to the next unforgivable sin and i kind of trace it back from you know the concept of divorce divorce and then the concept of um babies outside of wedlock and then the concept of um just sleeping together and then the concept of uh, homosexuality and the one that's coming down the pike is going to be um pedophilia, but we, we keep picking something. So if, uh, something that, okay, these are the acceptable sins and those are the not acceptable sins. But if we can put ourselves kind of on the same place on the same level and say, we all have desires, me included, man, I have desires that I have to die to myself Mm -hmm. on. Um, is there any reason why this one area that having to die to yourself in the area of sexuality is any different than me having to die to myself in this other area? Um, we, we have a chapter the very last chapter in the book before the afterword is uh, titled taking up your Su- sexual cross because we're all born that way and it goes through just all these different kind of sexual crosses that people have that they have to carry and and still be faithful to god now some people have gotten confused in the idea of what it means to take up your cross are we just talking about suffering no is a cross suffering absolutely what what taking up your cross means is that you're in a ridiculously impossible and difficult situation, and you're choosing to remain obedient and faithful despite this difficult situation. And when we look at that, there is a whole range of difficult situations where we choose into obedience because we are so drawn to Christ. And once we can place everybody as equal at the foot of the cross, I think that a lot of times will take away some of this shame because I know so many LGBTQ plus people have expressed that they felt like their particular struggle was the only one that you weren't allowed to struggle with. Everybody else's sin and everybody else's struggles were acceptable to talk about in church, but theirs wasn't. And I think that's one of the things that we just need to need to get away from.
0: Mm-hmm. Hillary Morgan Ferrer is my guest. Her book is called Mama Bear Apologetics, A Guide to Sexuality. And I also, uh, that was a very acute hiccup he had.
1: Uh, <laughs> Sorry about that. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> like but... I have chronic hiccups. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, as a guy who's on radio all the time, it's like, that that's what, I've got one of these buttons that I can i can mute my microphone for that second and so you can't.
1: <laughs> well, I don't even know what, they're, they're so chronic, I don't even hear them anymore. I'm uh, like, okay. oh, I did that.
0: <laughs>
1: Sorry. <laughs> it's just part of me now.
0: Yeah. All right. Let's talk, uh, if we can, about the, the enemy's new playbook, uh, as far as the language and the morality of the sexual agenda that we're dealing yeah. with. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so it's like, I think we, we've always had the concept of our, our kids trying to be seduced away from the biblical sexual worldview. I mean, that's that's been a thing since God has had a people, but what we haven't had is a reversal in it, uh, except for until the sexual revolution, which we saw kind of happening in the 60s and the 70s, where uh, they were saying a, a lax sexual ethic was actually better, it was more freeing, it was more love, but we never saw that happening within the church. The church still understood What God's mandate had become and what we're seeing right now is the way culture is structuring things and the way culture is using their language and the way that they're framing the issue. It is absolutely seducing our Christian kids into thinking that adopting this whole uh, becoming an ally and a champion for LGBTQ, not people, but ideology itself is the way that jesus would love and this is a very confusing thing for our kids when they are told so there's there's a concept called linguistic theft that i kind of coined in the first book it's the it's the concept of when t- people take a word that everybody already knows and it's usually going to be a very morally charged word like love or tolerance or hate or bigot or health care <laughs> and or bullying things it, it's kind of got a, a moral imperative to it they take that definition and they change the definition and then they put it right back on people and saying why are you engaging in this so when they define love per se as um accepting who someone feels that they are naturally and then they ask our christian kids why aren't you loving like jesus loved our kids don't know how to think through this of like oh okay they just changed the definition of love they're asking me to do something that's not actually loving No, a lot of times and say oh well I want to love like Jesus loved that says that we're supposed to be known as Christians by our love therefore they start going along with these agendas um and so one of the ways that we have also seen the sneaking in is in the concept and this is going to be a really really broad paintbrush that I use so uh just any listeners here recognize this is a very broad paintbrush the concept of intersectionality which is um are there multiple levels of oppression that people might have, ways that they've been marginalized, ways that they've been minorities in societies? And we keep wanting to define what that is over here in America. When I, I they, they keep talking about, you know, white culture or heterosexual culture, all these different, you know, a lot of times it's mostly white culture when what they're talking about is just majority culture, because we're going to see whatever we're talking about, this kind of having norms and having uh, kind of more of a a good old boys club among people of a certain race, we're going to see that in every single culture based on what the minor or the majority culture is there. So this is not unique to white people. It's not unique to the United States. It's not unique to uh, a lot of these things. But are there times when people have been marginalized mean they've been kind of pushed to the side, we don't quite get you. So we're just going to you know, not include you as much. Yeah. We've seen that happen with women where, you know, traditionally women have certain roles that they gravitate towards, but you get a woman who doesn't gravitate towards a traditional woman role. And a lot of people don't know what to do with her. And so a lot of times she gets shuffled off to the side, um, or just any kind of racial majority, racial minority, uh, people that if you look differently than what they're familiar with, it's not that they hate you. They just kind of don't know what to do with you. So they inadvertently start shoving those people to the side, or they start believing stereotypes because they've never known someone of a different race personally. Mm -hmm. Um, so anyway, we have, if you Google something called matrix of oppression, it's going to show up all these categories and who is the oppressed and who is the oppressor. And so if we are going to go on those categories, if you are a male, uh, a biological male who is comfortable in his own skin, who maintains a biblical sexuality and who's a Christian You are basically the most oppressive person that can possibly exist just by nature of who you are. And so this concept of oppression and a concept of justice being used in broad categories of people, well, now our kids are being told God is a God of justice. We need to fight for the oppressed. We need to fight for those who have been on the edges of society, you know, like it talks about the, the widow and the orphan and the foreigner. And now these kids who have this enough biblical understanding of what God's called us to do here are believing these other categories and saying the only way that I can fight for justice and fight against oppression is to now, again, ally myself and advocate for things that maybe the Bible says is sin or not just sin, but the Bible says is unhealthy for people. It's going against their telos. Mm -hmm. Uh, And all of this is ways that, um, and kids, especially if they are all our, all our youth are looking to find their identity and they're looking for ways to be considered special and to have people want to listen to them. And if they're being told you belong in this oppressor class, the only way that they can get out of that oppressor class is to adopt one of these sexual minority identities. Yeah, And so, um, like wow. we've had, uh, the study Abigail Schreier, she did, um, uh, looking at transgenderism, especially among teenage girls. of the parents say that when their child announces a transgender identity, 60% experience a boost in popularity. Yeah. And if it's like, we've had bullying since time immemorial, I was bullied for all sorts of things. I mean, I was bullied for being too pale for being too skinny 2 things that you know, people Oh, skinny white girl, that's what everybody wants to be. No, I was way too pale and way too skinny. And I experienced a lot of bullying from that. So we've always had bullying. But what if I could adopt a certain label, and now every single student on this campus and every single teacher is looking out for me so that I'm not being bullied.
0: Yeah, that's a game changer. Sign,
1: yeah, sign me up. That's yeah. what the kids are saying. Yeah,
0: I sign go, me up. I go from uh, living in the margins to being all of a sudden uh, at the center of attention.
1: And, yes, and, exactly. And, and
0: I'm untouchable. How about that?
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. All that right. is exactly what we're seeing happen.
0: Yeah. Let me take a little break. Hillary Morgan Ferrer is my guest. Her book is called Mama Bear Apologetics, Guide to Sexuality. We'll be right back.
1: It's the afternoon show with Bill drive time, drive
0: time. Let's get it started in your car, yeah. what's for dinner? Yeah. It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. I'm back with Hillary Morgan Ferrer. Her book is called Mama Bear Apologetics, Guide to Sexuality. And today's discussion is PG-13. So uh, do be cautious with younger ears or ears that you would uh, prefer not to hear possibly certain words that would trigger a discussion you're not ready to have yet. So just be warned. Uh... Although nothing I've heard is inappropriate, it just may not be suitable for younger ears. Uh, Hillary, right before the break, we were just talking about the attraction that transgenderism is for uh, younger kids, where they go from being an obscure uh, person to maybe someone who's the center of attention. And I also Mm -hmm. think of natural rebellion that people, that kids have, you know, what can I do to get back at my parents? Mm -hmm. I I remember that, and that has progressed over the decades yeah um, and so now this seems to also be a way to take control of yourself within your household with your parents. I'm in charge yeah. now, guess what? Mm-hmm. I'm transgender, and
1: yeah.
0: there's nothing you can do about it, mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, no, we're seeing we're seeing a lot of that. I think of like uh, just with kids with the stage that, you know, they call them the terrible twos where they learn the word no. Mm -hmm. And this is actually a really important stage because at this time, babies, you know, between zero and two don't really recognize that they can have a will apart from their parents. And so it's almost like they say no, just almost as a way of testing those waters, testing those boundaries. Am I my own unique person? And so even though it's you know not a fun thing to be constantly told no and have the tantrums, this is a necessary part of of the developmental process. And I would say the same thing for teenagers because they kind of have been living under their parents' expectations. They've been living under their parents' um, their rules and their culture and all these things. And so they get to the point where they start sort of having that identity crisis and saying, well, who am I? really, apart from who my parents have told me that I am. And so in, in the past, you know, it's it's all been things like, you know, dressing really crazy, or, or I would say slang words has always been one of the ways that generations have tried to kind of separate themselves. Because if you can create your own little language, then you, you can you can kind of be different from your parents. And you can say, oh, you're so old fashioned. I'm the new, I'm the new thing. You don't know what's in And again, this can be a very, very healthy part of establishing your identity apart from your parents. However, in the past, we haven't had this done by making permanent changes to the body. Even tattoos had an age limit of 18. It's like only once you're basically legally an adult, are you allowed to permanently change your body? Um, And what we're seeing right now with the transgender debate is we are lowering the age of consent to younger and younger and younger ages to where we say these children know themselves better than their parents do. These children know themselves uh, better than anybody else. And so we are allowing kids to what's called socially transition. Socially transition means that you have not done any surgeries yet, but I'm changing my name and I'm changing my pronouns. And even within the schools, I think uh, not Project Veritas, I think um, James (laughs) (laughs) O'Keefe's OMG Media, has just come out with this this huge thing with lots of documentation of, of emails within a certain, I think it's New Jersey, I could be wrong, maybe Pennsylvania, don't quote me on that, um, of all these emails of showing how they can do these social transitions without letting the parents know. So this is almost a way of kids saying, well, you say that I'm one thing, I'm going to be another. And it takes this healthy exploration and it turns it into something unhealthy because these kids are also being allowed to go on puberty blockers, and to go on cross-sex hormones. And, you know, puberty blockers, first off, they say these are totally reversible. No, I'm sorry. They're not totally reversible. I won't discuss necessarily the ways that they're not totally reversible right now just because we're on air and it might be a little too graphic, unless you want me to because I think it's valuable information. I'll take a pass on that. Okay, there you go. Uh, You know, always good to give you the option. Um, But then the cross-sex hormones, it's things like girls – I, I read a or watched an interview with a girl who had loved to sing, and she did not realize that once she went on those cross sex hormones, her voice was going to change, and it was going to change permanently. Yeah, she will always kind of sound like a dude now, forever and ever and mm-hmm. ever. And I follow a lot of detransitioners, uh, especially the ones that had transitioned when they were teens, and they are some of the most avid advocates for not per- uh, perpetrating these these. L- rights or allowing these kids to have rights and think that they know themselves because this is essentially the 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 preteen and the teen years are essentially an experimental season we cannot be saying yeah sure go ahead and experiment with things that will affect you for the rest of your life.
0: Mm -hmm. Hillary, I'd love for you to talk about uh, one of the great lies out there which is uh, love is love and Mm. how anything goes if it's consensual.
1: Yeah yeah so uh, this concept of anything goes as long as it's consensual is uh, an ideology called sex positivity. So sex positivity means that you do not judge anybody else for their sexual choices, and they can't judge you. And if you ever have even a knee jerk reaction to something of like, "Ooh, that's not okay," then that's you being sex negative, and you actually need to work to deprogram yourself. To even having these natural knee-jerk reactions against things, so essentially you're having to silence the Holy Spirit and sometimes silence a good, healthy understanding of what should and shouldn't be done with bodies. Where I'll just leave it at that. Um, excuse me. And so, uh, some of the some of the people that were really proponents of the sexual revolution, they really felt strongly that the more experimentation you did, the more people that you were with, it was this liberating um, force that helped you find your true self that is going to pave the way for the most flourishing. And I I would just say that we've tried this experiment for a long time and it does not work again, pointing back to the research that I cited earlier, even if we go into, uh, kids that are in romantic relationships in, uh, as adolescents will tend to have more anxiety and more depression than those who aren't in romantic relationships. And I'm assuming they mean romantic relationships as being sexual, Mm -hmm. but sometimes it may be just, being in over your head emotionally in a way that's not age appropriate. And so, um, yeah, this idea that anything goes, we would not take this as good advice for almost anything else. So we, we use the examples of um, the Mona Lisa. We put boundaries around the Mona Lisa. I've seen the Mona Lisa. There's a certain, it's like they have, they have ropes up. You can only get so close because they don't want a bunch of, you know, tourists hacking and coughing and sneezing on this priceless painting so we actually put boundaries around things the more valuable they are and i would say we we put more protections and more guardrails around things that are more powerful so like you know which would you protect more from your toddler the keys to your car or a button that would set off a nuclear bomb well of course you know you don't want your toddler getting either of those but definitely the nuclear bomb because the more powerful something is the more it needs to be guarded and so I like uh, Amy, who, who uh, worked a lot on this chapter, she said the the skeleton lurking in the closet of, of uh, sex positivity is that who you are and what you do with your body doesn't matter. That is essentially the message that we're trying to state. And if you were to ask someone, well, do you think, it, you know, my body doesn't matter? Do you think it doesn't that I have no value? They'd say, well, of course, I think you have value and say, well, if, if I have value, why wouldn't I Why wouldn't I value myself? Why wouldn't I put boundaries around myself, not give everybody access? Why wouldn't I protect myself in these ways? And I, I think it's because people don't really think to the furthest logical conclusion of what their ideology is. And sometimes just having them state it out loud and kind of state out loud what you're trying to say, the truth of it becomes self apparent. And that just making them say it out loud sometimes is the best way for them to understand the point.
0: Yeah. You know, uh, Hillary, the currency of sexuality has been so devalued in our, yes. in our world today. And I'm going to take a little break. And when we come back, I want to talk about some things that are tripping everybody up. Um, yeah, Hillary Morgan Ferrer is my guest. And her book is titled Mama Bear Apologetics, Guide to Sexuality. We'll be right back. I'm back with Hillary Morgan Ferrer. Her book is called Mama Bear Apologetics Guide to Sexuality. And this is a PG-13 discussion I'm having with her. And so far, nothing is inappropriate. But as you know, you get to decide what your little one's ears take in. So there might be words that you don't want to answer to yet. So maybe it's best you catch it on the podcast or pop in your earbuds or however you can listen to it uh, apart from younger ears. So, uh Hillary, let's talk a little bit about some of the things that are tripping everybody up. And of course, yeah. the first one that comes to mind is the massive issue and problem of pornography.
1: Oh my gosh. The the I don't think we are mentally capable of processing the amount of porn that is is porn and I think one of the studies that I looked at, so I won't say the the name of the actual website, but it's probably one of the major porn websites. They they do an end-of-year review. Yeah and in one year they published enough new material this isn't material just total on their website they published enough new material to watch porn 24/7 all day every day for 165 years straight
0: oh wait, wait, wait. i can't even put that in a compartment uh, so yeah, in no. one year they've produced that much material
1: in one year, and because it's because some of these ones, they allow people to upload their own, st- their okay. own stuff. So oh, you have gotcha. people all over gotcha, who are yeah. kind of using this one website wow. as their distributor. So that's how much was being produced. That's one website that doesn't even count the, the, the millions of other websites. And there's at least, you know, a minimum of 10. So they, they have enough. I think it's something like, um, 42 billion clicks a year. So it's like everybody on the planet six times a day or six times, or I can't remember exactly which one it was. And that's not even counting all the other porn sites. And I think that the statistic that shocked me the most was along the lines of that. There was like 60% of pastors who felt like they were in constant fear of being discovered for their porn addiction, (laughs) not for casually watching porn every now and then, not that you can casually watch porn, but for watching every now and then, but for their addiction. Wow. And that right there, it's like this: it, we are not capable of fathoming what this is doing to our society. And we, parents, a lot of times, think, "Well, not my kid." They haven't seen it. The average age of porn exposure is usually around eight. Yeah. Um, there are certain places that will look at the curriculum for school districts, and they'll they'll create a website that looks like it's for. One of the projects that they know that all the sixth graders are going to be researching and they switch like one letter or something like that, do dot org instead of dot com or something like that so that it takes these kids to a porn site. So they are actively currently trying to fish for your kids so wow. that the chances of them coming across it accidentally, that's that's where it's going to happen. And once those little brains are exposed to this, a lot of times they don't know what to do. They feel shame, but sometimes they do get. That, that kind of titillation of, well, this is really interesting, but I feel ashamed because I'm interested in it. And it's like, it's, it's hijacking their brains, it's hijacking their bodies, and then creating a sense of shame to where they don't want to tell anybody about it. So this idea that your kid's going to go off searching for porn, yeah, that might not happen, but them actually being exposed to porn is really, really high. And so I, I, I don't think parents quite understand because we grew up without smartphones. We grew up, you know, Without well, at least I did. I grew up without internet. I remember I was in high school when the internet first came out and you had to listen to that long AOL buzz thing at yeah, the beginning. Yeah. And nobody could pick up the phone. So it's just a v- extremely different world that we're in.
0: Yeah, I think there was a, a French researcher, Hillary, that was trying to do a study uh, comparing 20-year-old men who had viewed porn regularly with a group of 20-year-old men who had never seen it. And mm-hmm. the entire thing fell apart because he couldn't find group B. He couldn't find a group of 20 year olds that fit that category.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think if we want to compare this with some people just in terms of sexuality, like, is there anyone who would say, oh, opioids aren't that big of a deal? Painkillers aren't that big of a deal. When we're talking about porn and we're talking about sexuality, I'll just say the moment of climax and we'll call it that. Yeah. Um, releases a chemical that is as powerful, if not more than any of those. Mm-hmm. So the idea that your kids have access to this all the time, say if they had a room where they could go get o- opioids anytime they wanted, how, how quickly are you going to address that with them? We need to be that proactive right. when we're addressing this with kids. And I would say, first off, uh, put a plug in for good pictures, bad pictures is a great one to start out with with kids.
0: Mm-hmm. Hillary talk about the purity culture. How did that go? <laughs> and, and did it, so did it work out purity okay? cultural,
1: yeah it started out meaning well and then it just kind of devolved into a bunch of legalism and uh to the point of where people were so traumatized by it they felt like if they if they slipped up in any way they were like chewed up bubblegum and that uh you know the girls that everything was their fault and that you know they needed to be ashamed of their bodies because of what it elicited into god uh, you know the emotions and the hormones that it elicited into guys. And so um Amy, one of the the my um the contributor Amy on the book, she actually went and checked out a whole bunch of all the original materials, which were really, really good. And because and the one of the reasons they were good is because they included the parents in with it. What happened then is the parents kind of left that to the youth pastor. And then all these really bad analogies started coming in, like the idea of, you know, who wants the chewed up bubble gum or let's Everybody pass around a rose and, you know, fondle the rose. And when it gets to the end of like, okay who actually wants this rose? Mm -hmm. Like, I can't think of a way to make people feel more shame and like they can never recover their dignity. And even with the word purity, I like how we started out this conversation where what did you call it holiness or faithfulness? I
0: called it holiness.
1: Yeah, it's like I like the word holiness and faithfulness because like this concept of purity, it's like you you get one little drop of something bad in there and suddenly it's impure. Um, and that can be really damaging to someone's psyche, especially when you start adding in uh, this, this pand- you know, pandemic that we have of sexual abuse where you're going to have sexual abuse that's absolutely non-consensual. But at the same time, there's sometimes sexual abuse where kids don't recognize that what's happening is even wrong. And so all they remember is, well, it didn't feel right, but I kind of enjoyed it. And so they really internalize that of I have done something wrong, and there's just so many ways for for it to go wrong. But I really hope we go through in that chapter kind of what went wrong. We called that one how our best efforts went kablooey, (laughs) where um, there's a lot of times when we have really good intentions, we're seeing a problem that needs to be addressed, and then the way we address it has adverse complications and adverse consequences than what we intended. Well, that's when we just need to step back. And say, okay, what were the unintended consequences from that? Where are those unintended consequences coming from? Now, how can we structure it in a more a healthier approach? How do yeah. how do we create a healthier approach to this, to where we're actually accomplishing the goals that we want yeah. to accomplish?
0: Hillary, you just have about a minute left. What what are things to repeat to your kids until they want to gag?
1: <laughs> what you do with your body matters. Okay. Uh, I would say, and and of course, the kids are going to say, well, why? It's because God gave you your body to take care of it. Never tell your kids that their body is a gift because they've seen you re-gift gifts. They've seen you toss gifts. No, the concept of stewardship is present from a very early age. And those are the two things that I would repeat over and over again. What do you, what you do with your body matters. Why? Because God gave it to you to take care of it. That is going to really reinforce the concept of stewardship, which will really enforce that concept for everything from the mandate from Genesis 1 of being stewards of the land that is our role that is God's telos for us is to be stewards of this of this world and be stewards of our own bodies and so what better way to reinforce it and you'll get this every, from everything from why do i have to brush my teeth uh, why do i have to brush my teeth to why do i have to eat healthy because what you do with your body matters, and God gave you your body to take care of it. It's not just sexual issues. It's yeah. everything.
0: Yeah. So good. So interesting. This has been a fascinating hour, and I appreciate uh, your passion for this. And I, I love your book title, and you brought great <laughs> content to the show. Thank you so much for being with us.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: You bet. Hillary Morgan Ferrer has been my guest. Her book is called Mama Bear Apologetics Guide to Sexuality. We'll take a break and we'll be right back.